Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. I'm John, and this week we are doing our mayoral elections post-mortem. In a little bit, we're going to talk to those nice guys at the centre of the cities about the policy implications of last week's results. But first up, I've got the politics gang back in to talk about, you know, what we got wrong and why. So here's Stephen Bush and Patrick McGuire. All right, lads. Hello. How are you doing? So how, how, do, how do you think we scored? Uh, quite poorly. Yeah. yeah I, By I, any I, measure. I'm going to go with... When you say what we got wrong, I'm going to go with everything. I think, to be fair, we only got the marginal elections wrong. Which was four out of The dead certs, we called those perfectly. I mean, yeah, but you don't get to, like, you know, they're not, they're not, it's not like an exam, exam papers. You don't get to be like, oh, you know, I, I, I aced the Liverpool paper. Yeah, I successfully <laughs> predicted a conservative victory in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. This, to be fair, though, we did do both those things. It's true, so yeah. we did, we did correctly call both those mayors. So let's, let's, let's list some things we got wrong. So, west of England, we I think we sort of we all thought that push comes to shove, the Lib Dems would do that. I mean, everyone was guilty until last Thursday of talking about Lib Dems, weren't they? And now I think they've proven that they've they've just not got it. They're flatlining. I think the Lib Dems is a really interesting example of overcorrection. A lot of people at one point in 2016, I didn't think the Lib Dem fight back was that much of a thing going into the 2016 local elections. Uh, it turned out it was. I then kind of went, okay, you've got to take them seriously in Whitney and Richmond, when they then exceeded expectations. Um, but I then kind of went, oh, well, I now need to take them even more seriously. A lot of people didn't take them seriously until after Richmond, and they kind of went, oh my god, they're you know they're they're going to come come first. They're going to dis- you know replace Labour, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was. I think with the Lib Dems there was a problem of overcorrection, not just with us, but yeah. with pundits in general. And you know, in some ways, the West of England was the worst for this because you know we all thought Stephen Williams, the Lib Dem candidate, might win when in fact he came third, and so didn't make it into the runoff. But he wasn't that far behind Leslie Mansfield of Labour. Like you know, it, it wouldn't have been inconceivable that he would have made the runoff, in which case he could plausibly have won. And at least the Lib Dems were polling at like 20% there, as opposed to the 6 or 7% they got in many of the more urban regions. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the striking thing in terms of, you know, to, to, to sort of move back to my, my day job, as it were, uh, when I'm not moonlighting over here in Scotland, is what, what I thought was very troubling for the Lib Dems is if you look at the kind of 10,000 votes they got out of the whole of Bath and North East Somerset, right, where... Realistically, the Labour vote that's not in Bath there 
is former mining towns, you know, Wandsdyke, Radstock, etc., etc., um, largely white working class, all of the kind of voters who everywhere else deserted the Labour Party. Uh, so you kind of think, well, it can't have been those people, which means that Labour, of the, of the like 6,000 votes Labour got, probably at least 4,000 of them came out of Bath itself. The Lib Dems only got 10,000 votes out of it, so that is very close to coming, you know, a week, you know, second or indeed third in, in somewhere they held until 2015. Mm-hmm. So so they did they did very badly. One, you know, to continue my boring on about the supplementary vote, the supplementary vote is a, a trash system, right? People, there were two-thirds of all second preferences didn't count in the... Um, West of England mayor because you had to guess because they, yeah you yeah. had to guess who was going to be in the runoff well let's let's move on to something else we got wrong then which is I think we all I think there was a consensus around this table that it was difficult to see where Tory second preferences were going to come from and well, well such is the the best criticism against the progressive alliance that people don't vote in the way that you expect them to if their first choice isn't there and that's the thing and also I think the the mayoral element say Andy Street for instance uh, you're voting for Andy Street, the man, you're not voting for the Tory. So even if you are a bit squeamish about voting for the Tory, I think people in the, in these elections, and given that I think for, unlike you say, John, a lot of people would have interpreted this as a chance to put a, another cross in a box rather than, oh, I'm voting for my, uh, you know, the, the godfather of my city region, especially someone like the Tees Valley. It's another chance to kick the government. What I mean, all Labour. unlike you, John? Well, you love about, this thing. Yeah, it, you, hence you the podcast. It was like, you said it like a weird amount of venom there, like, you know, unlike freaks like you. <laughs> oh, um, we're all guilty, aren't we? Okay, okay, something else we got wrong. Tees Valley. We all, we all, I think, thought that Labour had had a difficult time, but we thought probably they'd pulled it back. Tees Valley, I'm actually still really upset about. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's always one... Well, I mean, I guess for your Conservative listeners, yeah. there isn't always one thing mm. from an election that haunts them. But there's always one thing after the rest of the pain has faded and still really hurts you. And I just think Sue Jeffries, who just really, really thought it through, right... And, she yeah she put a lot of effort into like working out what she would do as mayor. She probably had like you know one of those day planners where like she knew exactly what was on the agenda for every day of the next three years. The next sort of and, yeah. Well, it's like you know it's like you know when uh, New Labour introduced that first crop of elected mayors and you know uh, what was it Hangus the monkey in in, in Hartlepool like you know he then aren't, served three terms. Well yeah and he was I mean, very like, good and he yeah. did give. Oh no well, he, he wasn't allowed to abolish the post. Well he so, wasn't yeah. allowed to give free bananas for school children, uh, which was is one of his. Anyway I digress. Um, but you know yeah you don't get any prizes for, for earnestness when the electoral wins are against you. And, and Ben Houchen, who is the new Tory mayor of the Tees Valley. Was basically campaigning via troll. The banter, the banter. Yeah, it's like he did say, "Why don't we scrap Cleveland Police on Nationalising Airport?" Or like, and I think something we all got wrong about Tees Valley actually is we were all kind of thinking of it as as sort of Greater Middlesbrough, and therefore you know this is Labour heartlands. Whereas actually, it also included Darlington, which is pretty Tory. Michael Fallon's also. Yeah, I mean, so that that is actually the other thing that I think in terms of because yeah, the good thing about getting things wrong is they're a really good example to good way of, like, finding your sort of prejudices. I mean, obviously, we've got the excuse that you're from Romford and I'm from East London. I mean, you are a traitor to your kin. I know, I know. Um, because I think there was an interesting north-south bias in a lot of the commentary. I was looking at the Centre for Cities, things they did where they totted up how the places voted, right? And there was no reason for us to go, oh, West Midlands, anyone could get that, but go, oh, Tees Valley, Labour. 
Right, though, in terms of, of like, the actual voters there, mm. it's just, you hear the word West Midlands and you're like, yeah, that's full of dynamic, like, people who might vote Tory. And you, like, hear the word Tees Valley and you're like, oh. You figure the transport of well, no, actually, closed I, down steelworks, don't you? I, I think the difference is, in pol- if you're a politico, you think of the West Midlands, you think, oh, a lot of marginals around there. Whereas Tees Valley, to the best of my knowledge, historically, there have not been marginals, well, I mean, but it's more finely balanced in the safe seats, if you look at them as a collection, than we imagined it to be. Yeah, exactly. For, you know, it's sort of like the electoral push the Tories need to win a lot of those seats isn't that big. Like, look at Tom Blenkinsop's old seat. Red car has changed hands recently. So really, like, you know, although they may have been held for, by Labour for decades, actually, their uh, position there is much more precarious than anyone would give it credit for. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and in terms of other people who did much better than the... So obviously, like, you know, Steve Rotherman very much was kind of like the another well-known brand... Labour candidate, right? He performed exactly as you'd expect a Labour candidate to do. Someone who did not uh, perform how a Labour candidate, and I think this is a bigger thing we got wrong over a longer period of time, was Andy Burnham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was that week in 2015 when both you and I wrote quite damning columns about him and you got shouted at by his staff. I mean, so actually, that's been on for a while. I, I didn't write a column. I wrote a piece in which I was like, why this tactic won't work. I actually did never wrote a bad column. But, I mean, obviously, I, I said lots of I did write critical things. But yeah, um, it was very strange because they also, they, they clearly thought, I don't know, that I was your boss, which seems <laughs> strange seeing at the time we both had the word editor in our title. So you just like, just from an organogram perspective, I don't understand like the thinking. So I'm 10 years older than you. <laughs> yeah, but you're actually depressingly aging better than I am. I mean, I do have a sort of boyish youthfulness. Yeah, yeah so. I'm. I'm actually going grey. I thought that was just like something that happened to my mom from like the stress of like raising a child on her own with no money. But it turns out just bad DNA. Okay, I want to come back to the Burnham thing later on, but just briefly, one thing I feel we did not get wrong, or certainly I've been thinking this for a while, and I think I said it on the podcast a few times, was that Andy Street would win the West Midlands. I felt that for quite. A I while. think you didn't get that wrong. I had like I, I did. I hadn't like I had I my did. two cover by half. Oh, the Tories won't get transfers. But I also, I mean, I, I don't feel quite as bad about that one because there was what four thousand votes in it. Yeah, it was it was knife edge stuff. And obviously I mean, now it's been it's been sold as a triumph. For, I don't know. Someone said, someone said, you know, it's a it's an indication of the electoral potency of Mayite conservatism. I just think it's a you know a straight fight between a very good candidate and a candidate who ultimately was just a bit of a machine politician. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, evidence of quite how bad a candidate Sean Simon and actually not, was. He was deeply complacent about the whole thing. I mean, we'd, we'd sort of good reason if he only lost by 4,000. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't think... It's been sold as a triumph, but... But this is a weird thing. If you look at the three where Tories beat Labour candidates in runoff, they're all incredibly close. It was all within a couple of percentage points. Like, there was none of them that... Like like James Palmer in Cambridgeshire won like fifty six forty four or something. That was a sort of reasonably wide victory, margin of victory. But in in the west of England, I think it was fifty two forty eight. In the West Midlands, it was like you know fifty point four against forty nine point six or something. In Tees Valley, it was somewhere between those two, but it was like fifty one forty nine. It was very very close. It's interesting it's split there as well in terms of is it kind of doing well despite. Labour's national poll rating, which you can say it is and say the Tees Valley, or is it, you know, taking the sports for granted, which you can say of Sean Simon? Well, we'll be back in a little bit for some more Andy Burnham chat, but first, we're going to hear from those guys at the Centre for Cities. I am joined now by two of our friends and colleagues from the Centre for Cities, 
Andrew Carter, who you're, you're, you're running the place these days, aren't you? It's your show now. That's what I've been told. Yeah, and, and uh, Paul Swinney, oh, he's the sort of economics brains of the operation. So, first off, did we all enjoy the elections last week? Did we have fun? <laughs> I think we did. I think it was a really, really enjoyable experience. I, I was really heartened by uh, the enthusiasm uh, in those areas, uh, but also the enthusiasm and the interest in, uh, in the wider country and particularly in the, the wider media as well. I think lots of people were giving it a, you know, this will be all terrible and no one will really notice. I don't think that was the case. I'm really heartened by it. And afterwards as well. So what do we think of the turnout, Paul? Because like, it did, it did, there was quite a range on show, wasn't there, between, what was it, 21% in Tees Valley and 34 I think, in Cambridgeshire. So is that, is that a bit depressing? Well, I think if you look at the numbers, perhaps in isolation, you think, yes, it's quite low, but it was definitely above our expectations, I think others' expectations about how many people would come out. So actually we were quite pleased about that. I think if you look at... Uh, Oh, well, the issue is that I think at the moment perhaps the electorate don't fully understand what the role of the Metro Mayor is, particularly with the general election being called a few weeks after, perhaps it added a bit of confusion as well. You would hope that a couple of years down the line when the new candidates have come in, done a fantastic job, no pressure there, actually they then better understand about the role that the Mayor's got, the importance of that, and hopefully uh, turnout will go up. And I believe that's what happened in, in London as well. So it's about trying to understand the role of, 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 the, of the Mayor and the implications that has for, for that area. Mm, no, I, I, I looked this up. I think London in 2000, the first mayoral election, had turnout of just 34%. 34% which, yeah. And that's with you know a, a lot of national media attention, which obviously these races by and large did not get. No, yes. So I think under the circumstances, getting 29% in Manchester for what was basically yeah. a dead cert for Andy Burnham yes. is actually... Is actually yeah. a good man. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the mayoral, the London mayoral one, the most recent, we had, what, 45, 46%. You know, so I think there's a general improvement. I don't know the numbers. You probably know the numbers better than me, John. But, you know, compared to uh, local government elections, yeah. I think some of those numbers look pretty healthy to me. I think they're within a range. I, don't, I think... I, I don't think it's like local government elections, you get like 6% or something. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, I think 20 to 30 is often about the norm. Right. Um, so these, I, these weren't sort of shockingly low numbers, no. but there's a whole sort of Rorschach diagram thing going on, isn't there, where people who don't like the idea or don't like the winner can say, well, you know, the turnout was so low, it's, it doesn't really count. But if you I actually, I'm sad enough to have run the numbers on this on Friday, I worked out that 20% of eligible voters in London voted for Sadiq Khan last year whereas 18% of eligible voters in Greater Manchester voted for Andy Burnham. Okay. So it's very yeah. difficult to say that yeah. Sadiq has a mandate and Burnham yes. doesn't, yes. I yes. think. Yeah. yeah, and that mandate will be strengthened um, and their legitimacy will be strengthened as they get into the role, you know, as they take on you know, the, the leadership of the place. I think that's the difference that we'll hopefully see now in these mayors. They're not leaders of a council, they're not leaders of an institution, really. They're leaders of the place and if they really adhere to that and make that their own then I think that brings its own legitimacy which will both be good for them in the short run but also good for the mayoral institution over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Mm. So I don't want to spend too long on the politics, I kind of want to get onto the wonkish stuff but were there any results you were surprised by particularly? Hmm. Well, certainly, I think the Tees Valley one was a, a bit of a surprise. I think if you look at the, the voting history in, in that area, you know, very much traditional Labour 
uh, Labour voting and uh, and Tories won. Now there've been some rumours beforehand that actually uh, Ben uh, Houchin was making quite a good run at the at the seat, and indeed he sort of came out and he did win. But I think that's probably the the big one, which you wouldn't have expected. And certainly when George Osborne started on this, started on this agenda a couple of years ago, definitely wouldn't have been a place that uh, that the Tories would have been picking out as a as a win. But I think the very fact that they did get the other Tories did get four wins. You know, out of six is a surprise in itself. I think if you look back to the start of the agenda, there's some questions about why uh, Osborne was pursuing this. This is Labour heartland type territory. You know, isn't this giving Labour politicians more and more power? And actually, sort of the reflections now is that the Tories have done pretty well in in perhaps in some areas that traditionally haven't done so well. So it's quite interesting in terms of the political dynamic and then implications that has for uh, for sort of the city agenda, the devolution agenda with central government, given that it seems that there's been a bit of a shift in, under May's leadership about the role of, of devolution and the importance of devolution. Yeah, I mean, we did, we did think maybe that the Lib Dems would have a, a, a bigger showing, although they actually only just missed out on first preferences in uh, the west of England. But obviously the one that was too close to call um, and went really to the wire is, you know, was the, uh, the West Midlands, where, you know, in theory... Uh, Sean Simon should have won it, given previous polling, but actually... He you know, thought so. <laughs> uh, yeah, whereas in fact it was Andy Street, which I think is interesting. And, you know, not to overplay this, but, you know, again, I think, you know, it's an interesting one where, you know, maybe people are making different decisions, not only on party political lines. You know, London, typically a Labour city, has had a Conservative mayor, you know, West Midlands, maybe you know, particularly some of the bigger areas, typically Labour now has a conservative, conservative mayor. So I think part of it is that it opens up opportunities, and that pragmatism, how you're going to do the job, ultimately matters more than um, the politics of your particular party. Mm. There were some concerns before the election. I think that if it was a run of Labour victories, that support would not be forthcoming from central government. Do you, uh, Theresa May is not, is not someone who one can imagine enthusiastically embracing internal opposition, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> do, do you think that um, the fact that four of these new mayors are Conservatives will actually kind of lead to a sort of resurgence in interest again in central government in what was, you know, an Osborne policy, yeah, really? I think so. I think it's really important. I think... And if you think about the objective of the Conservative government from 10 onwards was to make progress in the Midlands and in the North, particularly urban or partly urban seats. They've done that through the mayoral uh, contest to a degree. I think they will make some gains in the general election on, on, on urban seats. And I think that brings uh, a requirement from Conservative government to safeguard and maintain those seats for the next election. So I think that does give, hopefully gives a real shot in the arm for the urban policy agenda, both in relation to the, specifically in relation to the mayors, making sure that you know, they are regarded as successful, but also more generally, if we see those uh, gains uh, in the general election, that the Conservatives will think harder about urban policy issues than they may, maybe historically have. And I think that is an important and interesting different dynamic that we'll see. Yeah, and I think it's... Um a lot of the Conservative candidates were selling themselves on the fact that actually there's a, there's a Tory government and they have a link into the Prime Minister. And I think quite a few of them said, oh, we know Theresa May personally and we know we can get on the, on the phone to them. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but we're certainly trying to sell it on that, on that line. Um, I think it actually poses an interesting question for 
uh, for Greater Manchester and Liverpool City Region about how they go about interacting with central government as well. I mean, if we assume that there will be a Tory government after after the next election, what does that then mean in terms of how Andy Burnham tries to go and deal with the, with the government? What does it mean in terms of Steve Rotherham, who obviously has got quite strong links to uh, sort of to, to Corbyn leadership within the Labour Party? How does he interact with central government and how does he get things done? Because part of this is going to be about relationship building at the local level, but part of it's going to be about relationship building with central government too. It's going to be a crucial part of the role and I think they have to think quite hard about how they, how they get around that. Yeah, and I think Sadiq's been pretty... Successful, with the exception of DFT, I think. Uh, he's been pretty successful uh, establishing a positive relationship uh, and a positive working relationship across his policy briefs um, in relation to with the Conservative uh, government. So, again, I think it, you know, it can be done for certain. So, as, as we discussed, you know, the turnout, while not as terrible as perhaps some people have said, was also not amazing, I think... Um, awareness of these new posts is perhaps not as high as as city nerds like us may have may have hoped <laughs> for. Um, my, my dad actually lives in Birmingham, and he did tell me that had it had it not been for me popping up every couple of months to go and try and tell someone, <laughs> he wouldn't have even known there was a bloody election on. So, what kind of things do you think these these six new mayors? need to do in the next few months to kind of just sort of make everyone sit up and think, oh, that's why they're here? Well, they're going to need something quite, probably quite eye-catching in the, in the early days. Um, I mean, that's what's interesting about, say, Ben Houchin in the Tees Valley. He didn't have a manifesto, which actually in some ways is a bit odd. How do you sort of then go and win an election if you haven't even got a manifesto? But one of the big things he did say was that he would nationalise Durham Tees Valley Airport. Now, agree with that or not, and it's a little... And, and, it's also a bit odd that perhaps a Conservative candidate would say he would nationalise something. But having said that, actually did get him a bit of coverage. And I think what we uh, what we would generally hope from the from the mayors is that they are going to come out with bold new thinking. We may not agree with everything that they, they come out with, but it's things like that that are quite eye-catching. And I think they probably have to be quite visible in these first 100 days, do something. Um, what they need to do, though, however, is actually set up what they're, in their own minds, what they're going to do in these first 100 days. And it's not clear yet for all of the, the new mayors that actually do have that nailed down. Yeah, I think that... I think it's in many respects, despite them being the mayors, I think they are still and should still be in campaigning mode. I think there is a, an almost a campaigning mindset that they need to continue to have, even while they're in office, about raising awareness, banging the drum, you know, in, under, making, helping people understand what the, the role in the institution of the mayor is alongside some of the quick wins and the, and the policy decisions that they'll probably need to, you know, to focus on and, and highlight. But, you know, often we say they have to shift quite quickly from campaign into delivery. I think in this respect, um, they, they may need to stay in that campaign more for a bit longer. Well, the fact there's an election coming up probably. <laughs> yeah, and it helps, you know, I think in some respects that helps them. You know, it helps mm. them continue to be out there you know, shaking the hands, doing the meetings, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that they'll need to, uh, you know, they'll need to, they, to, to do. I think it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, who would have predicted, maybe we could have seen it with Burnham, but, you know, the first two issues that both the West Midlands mayor and uh, the Greater Manchester mayor have focused their attention on is homelessness. A very emotional, emotive subject mm, yeah. that everybody broadly agrees, you know, everybody agrees that's a, you know, it's a bad thing, we need to address it. And immediately, you know, it garners a coalition of interest. It raises, you know, if you start it into a very niche conversation about some topic that really doesn't matter to people in many respects, but they haven't. They've chosen two big subjects 
two highly sort of uh, mortive subjects to uh, to start their um, their mayoralty around. I think that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see how many of the briefings that were prepared for the combined authorities had homelessness in there, which <laughs> is another issue about how mayors conduct themselves. I, I am sort of interested to see how those two guys work together, actually, because they think, like, both Andy Street and Andy Burnham, despite coming from different parties, having spoken to them both, I get the impression they're both quite keen on the idea that the two cities can between them can kind of combine to uh, provide a counterweight to London. And I can actually sort of imagine them, like, working together on some stuff to sort of talk about rebalancing the economy. I don't know what you guys think. I definitely think there's a role for them both to be learning from each other. Uh, and I think they should be having conversations around uh, around that and thinking about urban policy. I think uh, Sadiq Khan has been quite good and indeed Boris Johnson was good as well about talking to the core cities organisation you know, over the years and trying to understand well, what's good for the urban agenda, not just what's good for London. Um, but I think there's a there's an element of... Oh, you get a little bit of this, this with the Northern Powerhouse idea where it's it's sort of like, well, we'll all be better together and we'll all get along very nicely. But actually, ultimately, you know, Manchester is probably better positioned currently to get investment than a lot of other places across the north of England. If and when that happens, actually, I'm sure that a lot of places won't be so happy to, to be collaborating with Manchester. Be more like, well, why is Manchester getting everything and, and we don't? So I think there's an element of, yes, definitely collaborate where you can, but at the same time, actually do have this focus principally about how you tackle the challenges and embrace the opportunities within your area. So in the West Midlands, what are you doing about skills? How are you trying to make the West Midlands a more attractive place to, for business investment, attracting those businesses in, creating jobs and putting money in, in people's pockets? And I think it's about having that economic policy over the same, the one area that people live and work their lives over. And sure, go and have a chat with your colleagues elsewhere and understand what they're doing and see what you can do together to, to improve the lives of people in both areas. But also, you know, don't lose focus on the fact that you know, you've got one city region here that you're trying to attract investment into. I think that's right. You know, I wouldn't underestimate, though, their, you know, their requirement and their responsibility to be part of that agenda about pulling power and resources away from Westminster and Whitehall. Um, and that means, you know, they're big places, they're, you know, big personalities with a big mandate. It's going to be important for them to work together with other, uh, the other elected mayors and London to, you know, to make sure that that process of devolution, of decentralisation, whatever you use the term yeah. as you see fit, that they're able to do that. And that's not just because it's good for their place. You know, there are arguments about there is, uh, that's good for the country. So they are part of a bigger political agenda. Um, which is about moving power away. And um, I hopefully by working together, I think we can continue to make some progress on that. Yeah. What happens to the areas that didn't get over the line with the deals? Because there are, and you know, some of these are quite significant cities. There's no, there are no mayors in uh, Leeds or Sheffield or Newcastle yeah. or Nottingham. Yeah. What, what's going to happen with these places? Do you think? Well, wow. So I think there's a, so I think you've got, we've got the Metro mayors over these half a dozen places. I think, we need to make sure that they're successful, they do what's required, and they get the support that's needed uh, from government in order to do that. We've already talked about that. I think there is a job of work to be done by the new government to sit down at the table again with the remaining bigger cities, so Newcastle, etc., Leeds and its environs, uh, Sheffield, at the very least, to work again and think heavily, uh, focused on... Um, getting those places into the same place. I think that's, you know, that is a, 
Uh, I think that's a job of work that will need to be done by the new government and the cities themselves or the city regions themselves mm. will need to come to the table. And then I think there's a broader set of questions and issues about if we're interested in economic growth and political revival uh, across the country, what other arrangements might we need for medium-sized or smaller-sized cities who may not need um, all of the governance arrangements and all of the governance structures that we've uh, we've we've gone down uh, in the bigger cities? But we, I think, we do need a concerted effort to see if we can get Leeds and Sheffield and Newcastle over the line. Mm. There's an interesting dynamic here. I think when you, you sort of we talk about mayors, we talk about these six areas, but actually one of the, the things that actually does strike you is not just the places that have got the mayors, but actually the places that haven't and the, all the cities that you're, you're mentioning there, John. The, I mean, it's quite interesting in terms of the, the political dynamics of this because we haven't got Cameron Osborne leadership anymore, which we're very keen on this. And I think probably some of the places that were doing some of the horse trading that then didn't get into evolution deal were originally counting on, on Osborne in particular still being in post. So you sort of lost the, the big sort of standard bearer for this. Um, but having said that, you then have got uh, this political outcome of four uh, conservative mayors which may sort of reignite the sort of the uh, the clamor for devolution at the national level seeing sort of the implications it might have for for the the conservative party um, so that could be a good thing but then at the same time on top of that you could then have uh, labor leaders locally in, in certain cities going well hang on a minute we've just had this mayor put in place uh, in other places and the Tories did quite well we don't think that's a, a good thing so I think there's all sorts of dynamics going on there ultimately we think that having a mayor is a good thing for the people who live in and around the city regions that we're talking about. You think it'll improve their economy, improve the number of jobs available, and improve the amount of money that's in their pockets. And so we think that um, all parties should be pushing forward to try and get this. But it'll be very interesting to see post-general election what the, uh, what the position will be around it. It's always cruel to get people to make predictions, even when there isn't an election in the offing. <laughs> but like, what, give, give me a couple of things to look out for in this agenda over the next few months. It, it feels like the national parties are... Uh, are not seeing a great deal about perhaps policies generally, but certainly have said very little about devolution. Um, I don't know whether that will change given the, the the results last week and whether they'll start seeing something. But I think you're either looking for something in the manifestos or looking for something in the first 100 days about commitment there. I think then you're looking at, uh, at what do the new mayors actually do? What noises do they make in the, their first 100 days, understanding what's going on in the different areas? And then trying to see if there's a reaction from those places that don't have a mayor about, or well, are they coming out and, and making noises about trying to get a devolution deal? Are they looking to go and have conversations with central government, with uh, with politicians, sort of post-general election? Well, actually, do you know what? These are the places that have got a mayor. We want to have one now. Can we reopen the, the discussions? Yeah, I think, you, you know, you want to see the mayors setting out their, you know, their vision and their perspective for their, you know, for their area. Uh, and showing how they're going to bring together different organisations, often with different political interests, to make those sorts of things happen. You know, I think we have to recognise that they'll need a, an element of settling in. Um, but I think looking to them now to take the leadership, and yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a joint statement um, or joint arrangement or joint event where the six mayors plus Khan come together on a platform very visibly to both articulate you know why it's a good thing to have metro mayors but actually what they as a collective require from central government in order for them to be successful do you think we're likely to need to wait till after the election's out of the way before you can get labor and tory mayors on the platform together pushing a shared <laughs> agenda uh, po- well possibly uh, possibly i wouldn't rule it out though 
I wouldn't rule out the fact that you know within the general election space it gives them an opportunity um, to begin to do that preparatory work and to begin to make those uh, you know those requests uh, of central government. So. I wouldn't rule it out that you'll see something pretty soon, I think. The election definitely throws a span in the works. I think if it wasn't there, then you would, I think, we'd probably expect them to come out together quite quickly, wouldn't we? And say, we've now been elected, momentum's with us, this, this is who we are, this is what we want. Um, whether there's sort of, you know, any issues at national level and, and the party saying, no, you can't stand on the same platforms, you don't know. But, I mean, it is an area, it's a time to influence, I suppose, as Andrew says, is, the, uh, is, is one of the ways to look at it. I'd be surprised. I'd be interested to see how much electioneering the mayors ultimately do in their place my bet is that they won't do very much they will stay away from the electioneering for the general election in their patch now and quite rightly will adopt that role of leader of their place and they'll work with whoever it is that's in power well we'll find out soon enough indeed (laughs) paul andrew thank you very much cheers john vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So, Patrick, it's just you and I now, and I've got a confession. You were right and I was wrong, Andy I'm, Burnham. Well, and Andy Burnham, he really nailed this one. How you laughed when I said I was a Burnhamite with a straight face. Uh, Turns out I was right. Yeah, no, you were. And I'm... I'm I'm genuinely rethinking a lot of things about my attitude towards Andy Burnham because let's 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 talk about the result in Manchester for a little bit. So it was, you know, Labour did win a few things elsewhere, but I think the difference for the Greater Manchester one was he was really outperforming where you would expect him to. Like he on a, in a field of eight, which was you know a fairly certain election, we all knew he was going to win. He still got sixty three percent of first preferences. Everywhere. He won everywhere. He won won all 10 of the boroughs, including Trafford, which is Tory held and where his Tory opponent, Sean Anstey, came from. Um, He won, I I think it was, he won something like all but three wards, I think, in the entire 
Greater Manchester And Foundation. he also, benefit, perversely, uh, you know, the, the, the narrative, and it's not an untrue one now, is that the Tories benefit from UKIP's collapse. Bernard was not only winning Tory voters, whether UKIP vote had collapsed, it was benefiting him. Or there was a, there was a net benefit for Burnham and that there was no Tory gain. So it's, it is quite phenomenal. And I think it speaks to the qualities that uh, I have, you know, argued for in Andy Burnham for, for a long time and you haven't seen until now. I mean, yeah, I definitely think there is an element of... I, it's not that I think any of my criticisms were wrong necessarily. I think he has been a bit, not even slipperiness is the problem, but he's not always been very competent in the nature of his slipperiness. I think it's just that matters much more to people inside the bubble exactly. than to people outside exactly. who just seem like he's, he's clearly a nice bloke. He's clearly a local lad who like genuinely cares about both the city and the broader north. The Hillsborough thing obviously plays very well for him. But and also, you know, that's not... I, it's, it's, Obviously, he has that very uh, very powerful demographic appeal. But also, I mean, he showed an imagination that was sort of escaped a lot of... Like, other, you know, Sean Simon, to go back to Sean Simon, ran on the sort of, I'm the Labour guy, and also let's, you know, use the St George's Cross and take back control. Whereas Burnham had actually developed a very comprehensive policy platform and thought, mm-hmm. if these things are going to work, which, you know, it's still up in the air whether they will, it needs to be a bottom-up thing rather than a top-down machine politician thing and you know as, as was the case with him because sort of crowdsourcing his manifesto um yeah i think he did a very good job yeah no it's there is no way of looking at that result which doesn't look like a hell of a mandate like i i kind of so turnout in greater manchester is 29 percent, which doesn't sound that amazing except the turnout in the first london mayoral election back in the year 2000 was just 34 percent mm. And that, that obviously had a huge amount of media attention and was also a much more competitive election, I think. Mm. And, you know, and Sean Anstey's, um, I saw you tweeted this yesterday, Sean Anstey's re- reply, or it wasn't Sean Anstey, the, the no, Tory... It was, a, it was a Tory councillor in Trafford, it wasn't Sean Anstey. Saying, you know, our voters won't turn out. Well, that sounds suspiciously like the inverse of the, you know, uh, the Corbynite fallacy, which is, you know, yeah. if only the non-voters voted, they'd come out for the, for yeah. the socialist utopia. But actually, actually, the, 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 the makeup of the demographics would have been very, very similar in terms of who turned out. And yet Burnham, you know, ran away with it, especially when you compare it to Rotherham, where he Rotherham performed exactly in line with the uh, the sort of parliamentary arithmetic. Yeah, and turnout in, low, turnout in Liverpool is lower as well. It's 26 yeah. as opposed to 29, anything. But yeah, no, I, I crunched the numbers. If you kind of multiply turnout by the number of people who voted for him in the first round... It's about 18% of the Greater Manchester electorate came out to vote for Andy Burnham, which, you know, that doesn't sound that impressive, except if you run the same equation on the 2016 London election, it's 20% of the London electorate voted for Sadiq Khan on the first round, and, you know, nobody would seriously question Sadiq's mandate to run this place. Well, exactly. So, and and no, that's, you know, that's, that's the same kind of number. There's yeah, exactly. And no, and no, you know, what, what was it after the 2015 election? I am one of the 74%. I'm not one of the 26% who votes for the Tories. You know, these things are decided on who turns out to vote and who, yeah. who cares. So, you know, by any chalk, Burnham has, Burnham has, you know, won the day and won the, won the future. Yeah, so... I mean, it's not you're, you're not a Mancunian from Sefton, just over in well, I mean, just a very as fine a, Liverpool city region. And, store, Andy Burnham was born in Old Roan, uh, also yeah. part of Sefton. Uh, so uh, you know, I, you know, the way I talk about Andy Burnham on this podcast sort of implies that I have a poster on my wall. I don't because you can't buy them anywhere. But if the, you know, if anyone knows, uh, please let me know. <laughs> but I was going to ask, as as our representative of the North on the podcast, as a, as the spokesman for for Northern youth, what do you what do you want to see these guys do? That's a very, very good question, John. Um, 
I'd like to see them stick up for the north on the. Uh, you know, I've spoken before about the the Burn and Rotherham uh, sort of cool dad axis. I'd like to see that. You know, that that that's going to be a very effective way of continuing some of the some of the work. Say, so Joe Anderson has done. Peace be upon him. Um, in sort of cutting deals and getting a good settlement, which will be very difficult for the Tories to resist. Now, by the way, now they've got Andy Street, uh, Ben Houshen, and. Uh, what, uh, Tim Bolt uh, and, and James Palmer. Well, yeah, exactly. So they, you know, it's in the Tories' incentive to to make these sort of laboratories for localism work. Um, I, I th- it's going to be very interesting to see what Burnham does with uh, Devo Mank in terms of integrating health and social care. I think you know he's a pretty deep thinker on this issue, and this could provide a blueprint for you know how we deal with the health and social care nightmare that's you know creeping. Well, has already crept up on us, but no one's paying attention to it because of Brexit. So. Yeah, great. that's something we don't we've not talked about very much around here because it's like it gets very technical. I used to be a health reporter; it gets very technical very quickly, yeah. and it's quite difficult to make it sound interesting unless it's stories about you know old ladies being left in corridors or something. But yeah, but, but I mean, in short, you know, you, one wants to see these Labour mayors use um, their platforms and their powers as incubators for sort of radical social democratic policy, um, and with the Tories having every incentive to make these things work. I don't see any reason why why not, but I suppose we'll say. The single policy I would be most interested in seeing coming out of this um, is one that was kind of talked about a lot a couple of years ago and sort of quietly got dropped is what was incorrectly referred to as HS3, the idea as an, a new railway link across the north. Cross, cross over the north. Yes, is what which is, which is actually a much a much better label for it because HS3 implies it's high speed and it really wouldn't be high speed. Well, yeah, there's, there's, yeah. A very, there's a very good line someone used once um, in a piece about devolution, which was something like, you know, the funniest thing about the fast train from Liverpool to Leeds is that it doesn't exist. So, you know, uh, and, you know, that was the first thing gone in 2015 or 2016, wherever it was, you know, they, they said, we're not going to electrify the Trans-Pennine route. So if they can sort of get the government in a headlock and say, you know, put your money where your mouth is and mm-hmm. let's recalibrate or, you know, rebalance the economic settlement in the UK, which, you know, with May's sort of muscular statism in a tar- in targeted intervention, I, I, I can sort of foresee that happening, although that's maybe that's wishful thinking. Well, we shall see. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping before we go. I normally say I would be back next week. I will not be back next week because I'm I'm off to uh, Montreal for a, for a conference about trains, which I'm very excited about. But realistically, not going to have a chance to put out a podcast. So we'll be back in two weeks. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.